Now, when you say that I can be somebody else, what do you mean exactly? Well, we mean exactly that. We can put you inside someone else's body for 15 minutes. Can I be anybody that I want to be? Well, you... Actually... You can be John Malkovich. It's perfect. It's my second choice, but it's wonderful. It's... I'm a fat man. I am sad and I'm $200. fat. $200? Oh, oh, uh, yes. Okay, you gotta crawl in there. No, that's what I'm saying. See, I don't, I don't really need an extra bath mat. So if I get this set, could I? Would it be possible if I could just get maybe three extra hand towels? Uh, if I get this set instead of the bath mat? Yes, sir. Sure, we can do that. Great, great. That sounds good. And and uh, for the color uh, periwinkle? Oh, I'm sorry, we're out of stock in periwinkle. Do you want to back order? No, I'll. Uh, go with the loading. Would you like to order anything else? Well, just, what is the difference between this, the foot pampering looped cotton rug and a, and a bath mat? Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 304, Being John Malkovich. There are a ton of lines, parts in this movie, where if you replace the word puppeteer with podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a podcaster. Check. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of sad how much... We may relate to Craig Craig in this movie. (laughs) But nevertheless, this is one of those rare times where we teased an episode, and a couple weeks later, here it is. So if you listen every week, Mm. you probably knew that being John Malkovich would be coming your way soon. This is a movie that has been on our much-fabled list for years. Always gets bumped down. I didn't know which one we would get to first, this or Adaptation. Yeah. They've both been there. They've both been taken off the list, moved around. There was definitely a Charlie Kaufman era. Was this the first? Charlie yeah, Kaufman's this was script? the first feature film. Yeah. The introduction to the world. Yeah, I think that 
the reason we haven't jumped in yet with either of these first two scripts is that they're both very daunting and yeah. they feel big. Feel like there's a lot to say and to cover and to try to touch on. This movie is hilarious, but it is kind of a mind fuck at the same time. Before we discuss being John Malkovich, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Wherever you find us, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. Five star only. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you, but please. <laughs> yeah, keep it positive. Keep it positive. <laughs> you never know. How close we are to just giving it all up and becoming street puppeteers. I'll tell you, pretty close. <laughs> if you'd like a free sticker, please reach out to us and we'll send that to you via Twitter. I guess we're not going to send the sticker via Twitter, but that's where you'd hit us up and send us your address. If we could figure that part out, that would be cool. Get me out of the mailing <laughs> we'll just business. send an email <laughs> with a picture. <laughs> Here, turn this into a sticker if you want. We're a magnet. Yeah. <laughs> And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there, where we'll log in movies, we'll see what you're logging in, whatever. It's kind of lost its luster for me over the last two years, but I still do it. I occasionally get a follower that I check it, and they're following you, so I assume that's someone from the show, usually. Maybe. I don't know. I guess that's not a... I think there's really only like 10 people on Letterboxd. It's just a multi-account. And, yeah. You know, it's a lot of incestual things going on there. There's people that are just creating all these accounts so that they can have like 20,000 followers and so that they can follow four people. Okay. Being John Malkovich, 1999. Directed by Spike Jones, Written by Charlie Kaufman. Budget, $13 million. Box office, million, so it was kind of a hit, Uh a lot of word of mouth, it was a little bit of a phenomenon, we're not going to get too deep into it, but 1999 is one of those legendary film years, this fit in right alongside everything else, it was definitely a, a year of change, a year of innovation, one of those pre 9-11 years where... There was a lot of optimism. Yeah, many uh, genre-bending efforts. Really incomparable to anything we're experiencing now. I don't know that we will ever have something like 1999 ever again. Because the money's just not there, and the studios are not willing to take chances on things. Right. And now you have to pitch your reboot or sequel or remake and that's how you have to break in. I don't know that we're going to find a lot of new Charlie Kaufmans this way. I do think that there will be interesting, unique voices, but I'm not smart enough yet to see how they're going to break through. I think people are probably going to be more attracted to different mediums. You may have your next Charlie Kaufman do a miniseries for HBO or Netflix or something like that. It might not be a feature film might be something on YouTube. It might be something more DIY. I don't know. I'm not saying that people will never be as creative or as interesting as Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman. I just don't know that it's all going to happen under a studio, a small indie style studio, but under those banners and come up and yeah, 
get a wide release and get Oscar nominations and the whole deal. We're certainly not living in an era like that right now in no. filmmaking. Being John Malkovich, speaking of Oscars, was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Katherine Keener. All right. Best Director for Spike Jones And Best Screenplay written directly for the screen for Charlie Kaufman. It did not get nominated for Best Picture, though. It is strange with Spike Jones because it always feels like there's more to his directorial career than it's actually been. Well... At least as far as narrative feature films. Yes, true. Yeah, a lot of music video work and things of that nature, different shorts and stuff. First feature and he gets nominated for Best Director. Yeah. You know, then you have Adaptation, and then Jackass is more heavily (laughs) (laughs) celebrated than pretty much anything else after that. That's his prerogative, though. He seems interested in different formats, different things rather than just making movies right after spending eight or so years delivering some of the most iconic music videos of the 1990s among them buddy holly for weezer sabotage for beastie boys oh yeah and several for fat boy slim spike jones dove headfirst into narrative features in 1999 with a truly Unique and unforgettable debut. Another thing, I know this is so repetitive and people are probably (laughs) vomiting and throwing their headphones in the trash just listening to this. Two fucking old douchebags in their 40s whine about everything. (laughs) Well, this one really isn't whining. It's just pointing it out. Because I never really gave that much of a shit about music videos. I thought they were cool when I was like in high school or middle school and then you move on with your life. But... It is hard to explain how truly significant music videos were. That is true. In this era, and how many people came from that world and moved into feature films eventually. Oh, yeah, Mick G. <laughs> well, there's good ones, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> besides Spike Jones, David Fincher, uh-huh. F. Gary Gray, Michael Gondry. Yeah. A few people like that. Fincher, by the way, who cameos in this film. Worked as a gateway. Yeah, because filmmaking, obviously, a big part of it is visual style, is presentation. And guys like Spike Jones were telling short stories through the genre of a music video. And he didn't write the script for being John Malkovich or Adaptation. So it's not about necessarily coming up with all this stuff, but it's presenting it. And I think that a decade or so close to it of music video work proved that he had visual style and flair to spare, if you will. And it all makes sense. And it turns into this perfect marriage of vision and sensibilities with Charlie Kaufman, who is one of the most creative, innovative, fascinating, and polarizing writers of our time. His films, both as a writer and as director, are brimming with original ideas. Oh, yeah. Even on the surreal side, absurd at times. It's almost too much to take in. There's so many different things. There's uh-huh. Just in this film alone, the first 15 minutes or so, there's 10 different things that could be their own movie. <laughs> right. And it's just a little part in the background that you move on from, and you're not even 100% sure if it matters or factors into the overall story or if it's just part of the world that he's built 
Yeah, and probably an introduction for me to anxiety on film times a million in adaptation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever seen a more perfect representation of myself than adaptation. <laughs> it's almost too painful to watch. Yeah. Kaufman's idea of being John Malkovich originated simply as, quote, a story about a man who falls in love with someone who is not his wife. Mm. That's simple. <laughs> Gradually, he added further elements to the story, which he found entertaining, such as floor seven and a half of the Merton Flemmer building. Among his first ideas, Malkovich was, quote, nowhere to be seen. He wrote the script on spec in 1994. And though it was widely read by production company and film studio executives, all turned it down. Hoping to find a producer, Kaufman sent the script to Francis Ford Coppola, who passed it on to his daughter's then-boyfriend, Spike Jones. Jones first read the script in 96 and had agreed to direct the film by 97. He took the script to Propaganda Films, which agreed to produce the film in partnership with production company Single Cell Pictures. Single Cell producers Michael Stipe and Sandy Stern pitched the film to numerous studios, including New Line Cinema, who dropped the project after chairman Robert Shea asked, why the fuck can't it be being Tom Cruise? Yeah. Jones recalled that Malkovich asked the same question and that Malkovich had felt that either the movie's a bomb and it's got not only my name above the title, but my name in the title, so I'm fucked that way, or yeah. it does well and I'm just forever associated with this character. Jones explained in the same interview that he had not realized how brave Malkovich's performance was. And really neither of those things happened. No, not really. Malkovich's name is said in the film over 130 times. It is very surreal in that sense. There's really nothing like it. I think Correct. later people would try to go into those mockumentary things like the Joaquin Phoenix oh, one yeah, and right. things of that nature and more meta takes on material. But meta wasn't quite a thing that people were accustomed to yet in 1999. I'm not saying this movie invented it, but yeah. it takes it to a whole other level of what I would almost describe as quasi-reality or sure. something like that. Yeah. Because it's not real. Obviously, it's a science fiction movie. Right. And even the version of Malkovich in the film is not really who John Malkovich is. Right. But a lot of the audience might not know that. They might just assume that this is what Malkovich's life is like if they know who Malkovich is. Which is why it's sort of perfect that it is Malkovich. Because probably like 70 to 80% of the audience is going to know who Malkovich is, but not everyone will. Oh, yeah. When this movie came out, and I didn't see it when it came out, but I remembered being aware of it being out and the title. And I knew the name John Malkovich, but I didn't know who he was. Right. Although I probably was sort of the same. Uh, that might be more to do with our age. Probably, yeah. But yeah. I recognized the name that he was someone who was a famous actor, but I didn't know him by his looks or anything. Yeah, outside of people who are obsessed with movies or people who are going to the cinemas every week during that time period or who are reading about movies or watching TV shows about it, because this is really pre-internet for a lot of people or just on the cusp of it, yeah. I guess. It's a bold move because I think a lot of people are going to naturally assume it's some sort of a documentary or some sort of asinine thing. Right. They're not going to understand what it is. 
you really have to sell it to an audience via previews, via commercials. People aren't going to know from the title what the fuck this even means. Well, it is bizarre. Yeah. Not Tom Cruise, but as I was watching it this time, and it probably goes back to Uncut Gems and finding out that they had a whole other plan, not Kevin Garnett when writing it, and it did lead me down a path of thinking, I wonder if it was always supposed to be John Malkovich, which you confirmed, yes. Yeah, Kaufman said that there was never another actor in Malkovich's place in the script. He said, the screenplay was always being John Malkovich, even before I had any expectation that John Malkovich would even read the script. He chose Malkovich because he believed there to be an enigmatic quality about him that works, though Malkovich was partly chosen because of the sound of his name in repetition. Kaufman explained that when we were thinking of alternatives, we found that a lot of them weren't fun to say. Mm. Jones's then-father-in-law, Francis Ford Coppola, was able to contact Malkovich, and Jones flew with producer Sandy Stern to Malkovich's home in France. Stern said that Malkovich was half-intrigued and half-horrified when he first read the script, but he eventually agreed to star in the film. It was actually to the point where Kaufman, who was mostly a failed TV writer, he had been in some writer's rooms, it hadn't really worked out because his style is not really conducive to half-hour sitcoms and things of that nature. And so he was fledgling as a writer, but he was still at a point where he was adamant that it had to be Malkovich, so much so that he wouldn't make the movie if it wasn't. Right. That may have been partially a response to the idea of suggesting Tom Cruise, who, when we were talking before we started recording, that is such a shift yeah. that it becomes something else. That becomes what it's like to be a celebrity, right. rather than what this movie is, which has nothing really to do with that. Even though you might think that without seeing it, that it has something to do with getting to experience being in the entertainment world, getting to experience being a celebrity, getting to experience what it's like to be rich. Yeah. None of that is what this is at all. Plus, Tom Cruise seems more eccentric on his own, not with someone like taking over his consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also that baggage that would be brought in, although in 99 that probably wasn't right. as apparent yet. Yeah. But yeah, Malkovich works because it's someone that enough people recognize who it is, but they probably don't have any preconceived notions of him because mm-hmm. he's not really famous enough to. Right. And he is enigmatic and weird, Yeah, but not in the sense where everyone knows that. When you think about it, I kind of agree with Kaufman. It just works. He's the right guy for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's hard to even think of who a comp would be. In 99? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Charlie Sheen. Steve Buscemi? Yeah, Buscemi could work. Yeah. He was probably a little bit more known in 99 because he had already worked with Sandler a couple times. Plus he was in Fargo, Reservoir Dogs, things like that. Yeah. Malkovich's IMDb is interesting. He basically has been a successful actor since the 80s, but you can't necessarily name a bunch of like huge hits. Yeah. And nowadays, my God, it's it's kind of depressing. It's all straight to VOD stuff that you've never heard of. I was trying to think to myself the last movie that I saw him in, and I'm sure there was something... But the first thing that came to mind was Burn After Reading. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's like 12 years ago or more than that. Wasn't he in both of those Red movies? Yes, which I didn't see either of them. 
I saw the first one. Yeah, he's a guy where if you go through his last 10 years, let's say, yeah, it's a lot of depressing stuff, including at least one of those movies with Bruce Willis. Like, that kind of stuff. Right, right. Those straight-to-VOD movies you've never heard of, they have like a three on IMDb. Like, that bad. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of them. So he's clearly at a point where he's looking for paychecks. Right. But he'll also appear in television shows that you've heard of. Oh, yeah. Movies that you've heard of that you haven't seen. That he's kind a of a thing where he still shows yeah. up in like real projects. So he kind of does both right now. And he's lucky. And this is sort of plays into what we're talking about with his name and who he is and stuff. Where next year, let's say, he could be in an Oscar contender and you wouldn't think twice. True. It yeah. would not be weird that he had done all these VOD movies because right. he's not someone who's fallen so far that it's a story that he's done them. Like Bruce Willis. It becomes a thing after a while with Bruce Willis. You wonder what's going on, and then you find out the sad truth, and it sucks. Yeah. But with Malkovich, he was never big enough where you're that worried about it. Right. It's like, oh, he's just been working consistently, but it's in crap that no one's seen. Yeah. But but next year, he could be in a huge movie as the villain, or he could be in an Oscar movie, and you would never think twice. Yeah, exactly. He just shows up, slides Right. right back in. Being John Malkovich has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I only point that out because on CinemaScore, it has a C. Hmm. I don't think that's particularly surprising. This is not necessarily a movie that's for everybody, especially when you open it up to the masses. Sure. Not to single out any specific states or anything, but there's segments of the population where I don't see this playing big. This is definitely a Coast's. Oh, yeah. The coastal yeah. movie in the big cities. And I don't <laughs> think there's a lot of other areas where they're going to be like thrilled with this. Uh huh. Didn't do well in Idaho. Like I said, I don't want to single out any sure. state. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's probably some places where I can't imagine this was a big hit. Yeah. This is the type of thing that if my parents started watching it. Oh, my mom wouldn't be able to last five yeah. minutes with this. I think my mom would actually enjoy the seventh and a half floor or whatever. But as soon as they started actually going inside John Malkovich, I think uh, it would lose her. Ebert gave the film four out of four stars and picked it as the best film of 1999, which is significant because, as I said, 99 was such a stacked, memorable year Mm -hmm. that everyone always cites and remembers. Huge at the box office. Huge in terms of critical acclaim, in terms of innovation, tons of stuff going on. So that is noteworthy that he picked it as the best of the year. And finally, before we jump into the film itself, this is another film that is right now only available as a streaming rental, not for free. Which, okay, last time there were a couple of rando streaming services that had LA Confidential, but... This has become a little bit of a distressing recurring theme. Yeah, here. I know. It's shocking. It is a constant reminder that Physical if you are media. relying on streaming services to provide you with choice and with what to watch, you're not really getting a lot. It is frustrating to me, especially when I see the same movie on three different streaming services. Exactly. That's what I mean. I know. Things get shuffled out of the rotation, and the one that... It may come back on HBO Max because they have a big library with the Criterion stuff and the Turner Classic Movie stuff. If it's not on there, then who knows? 
you know, maybe you'll get a random stars or Showtime or something. But at this point, it seems like Hulu and Netflix and some of those other places, they have like 15 movies yeah. that aren't their own things now. And look, we're beating the drum over and over. I'm sure, sure. you're tired of it. But we're big supporters of physical media. I know not everyone's going to want to have a massive collection like this ridiculous apartment I'm living in now. <laughs> but I'm not saying you need to have 10,000 movies on Blu-ray or DVD, but... The ones you want to watch, uh, Yeah, I think the people who got rid of everything because they just were like, well, the world is streaming now. I have Netflix. I don't know. I think everybody should have at least their 10, 15 favorite things. And maybe being John Malkovich isn't that for you, but my point is still, don't trust these services to provide you with stuff. Yeah. If you like something, you should make sure you have access to it because... We've seen what happens with HBO Max. They take things off and bury things. And who knows, maybe one day your favorite movie will have something that becomes problematic and then it becomes sort of canceled. And so then streaming services aren't going to have it. And then it's going to go out of print. And then what are you going to do? Oh, yeah. I just think it's a safe bet. And it's sort of alarming to me that we've done, I think, pretty cool movies post-Godfather and... I know. All of them except for LA Confidential, you have to pay to rent, not streaming anywhere for free. And even LA Confidential, it's these weird apps that right. most people don't have and you have to watch commercials and it's a whole thing. Yeah, I had to rent this even though I probably had countless opportunities to get this during various Criterion oh sales. Oh my god, I can't believe you don't have this I know. Criterion. I couldn't remember if I did either the last time we talked because I'm sure I've had it in my hand as one that I was going to buy. Like lost and in America. some of the terrible, <laughs> terrible ones you have bought. Yeah, think about that. Yeah, shame. Well, shameful. Listen, there's still plenty of Criterion sales left to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough about Criterion and physical media. Yeah. People know the drill. You'll either do it or you won't. Maybe you want to pay four dollars every time you think of a movie that you want to watch. It's probably cheaper. <laughs> than owning all these stupid movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because how many times are you going to watch it anyway? Right. right? Who knows? All right. We open on a marionette puppet, and the puppet has the likeness of the sad puppeteer at the helm. Cusack's look in this movie, Oof. wild. Yeah. Everyone makes a big deal out of Cameron Diaz's look, and we will certainly talk about that in a minute, but... This may be the worst John Cusack's ever looked. Yeah. This kind of <laughs> seems like how he would have looked if the acting thing didn't work out. Maybe. Yeah. I was sort of wondering, though, when I started watching this and you're reminded of everything, because it's not like I'm always thinking about the plot details of every single movie. So it's been probably a year or two since I've watched Being John Malkovich, and we open on this marionette puppet, and I was thinking about the film Annamalisa, which is also a Kaufman thing. And right. I know that isn't puppets per se. It's like stop motion, but they look very marionette puppet-like. Yeah. Is that a thing with him? Is this very biographical? Does he love puppets or something? It could be. It does seem like he's impressing himself upon a lot of his characters or writings. I get that it fits in with the whole idea of being John Malkovich. and Yeah the inhabiting of somebody else's mind and the control and all that stuff. But I was wondering if there was a little biographical element. Very possible. Craig Schwartz, played by John Cusack, is an unemployed puppeteer living in New York City in a forlorn marriage with his pet-obsessed wife, Lottie, played by Cameron Diaz. 
Imagine how this apartment has to smell. Awful. Yeah. It's a rough scene. I know it's a basement apartment. It's pretty terrible. I'm going to pull a mat here, even mm. though I get so annoyed when he does it. <laughs> I am questioning how they are able to live in New York City. I know. She works at a pet store, which and we never see. He's unemployed. <laughs> he gets, I guess, change jars. I know. He's basically a panhandler with puppets, who I assume makes less money than the panhandlers who don't have puppets. I'm just always interested in how people are living in the world, because it seems hard. And in this case, it seems impossible. Normally, I don't care. Yeah. But in this instance, his life sucks so bad yeah. <laughs> that I am wondering how they even afford food. How he's managing to even stay in this relationship not working at all. Well, I think she's a loser, too. Yeah. I'm wondering if she just gets the pet food for free. Because how do you pay to feed all these animals? Yeah. Yeah, that apartment's got to be terrible. They have a chimp. Oh, I know. Dogs, cats. Lizards, birds, I don't know what else. It's a disaster. I know. It seems like it would also be like terrifying sleeping at night. Cusack read the film's script after he had asked his agent to present him with the craziest, most unproducible script you can find. <laughs> Impressed with the script, he asked his agent to follow its progress and book him an audition, which won him the role. This was a hot time for Cusack coming yeah. off of High Fidelity. Gross Point Blank. He was definitely at a different yeah. level in his career than he is now. Well, he was always good at being the depressed guy that we like to root for. And this one is just the depressed guy that is kind of hateable. Oh, he's definitely hateable. Yeah, okay. 100% hateable. <laughs> Full on hateable. Yeah, he doesn't really have any redeeming qualities no. in this film. He doesn't seem like he's that committed to personal hygiene and... He wants to openly cheat on his wife, who seems very sweet and naive, at least at first. Yeah, and supportive of him. Yeah, she wants him to get a job, but she's not a nag about it. No. I think it's more that she wants him to get a job just because he's depressed and not really living up to his potential, mm -hmm. which whatever that would be, Yeah, I don't know. What's the ceiling for him? Like toll booth worker? Diaz had no idea what she was going to be made to look like in the film, as the script really didn't include physical descriptions. So dramatic was the change that much of the crew had no idea who she was at first. Look. Yeah. I believe that, I guess. I do think it's a little bit overblown. People act like she's unrecognizable in the movie. It just seems like a wig. I think that might be her hair. Okay. Dyed and blown out. Gotcha. But it's just the hair. Yeah, well, even yeah. if it's a wig or, or real hair, it doesn't really matter. Her face still basically looks the same. I know she's not really wearing the same makeup. She's not as glammed up. Yeah. Obviously, she doesn't look like she does in the fucking mask or something like that. Well, I think she was brave. I'm not going to say brave. I would say, like, firefighters are brave but, <laughs> or soldiers <laughs> or something. But I think she's good in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I think she's one of those actresses that rarely gets any credit because most of the stuff that she did was not really that mm. intellectual. It was more comedy, goofy shit. Didn't but have to flex too much. I do think she's a decent actress. We obviously could not get enough of her dialogue in Vanilla Sky. Definitely. But yeah, I think the weird thing is that she essentially retired from acting after 
the film Annie in 2014. Oh wow! Holy shit! And now so it's she's been ten years coming back. All right, in good. A Netflix movie. Did you not know this? No. So she's doing this Netflix movie called Back in Action. You know I don't know anything. Yeah, but I felt like we talked about this at some point. With Kyle Chandler and Jamie Foxx and Glenn Close. Hmm. and So a lot of people that nobody cares about anymore. <laughs> I was noticing that Jamie Foxx was also an Annie in 2014. I was okay. like, okay, so that's the connection there. But there's something so anticlimactic about coming back out of retirement after basically a decade and it's a Netflix thing that people are not going to care about after two days once it's released, if even that. I know. I'm sure that a lot of people watched the new rom-com with Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher that just came out yesterday, but I feel like it barely made a dent in the world. Even though, like I said, I'm sure a lot of people watched it because everyone seems to have Netflix, so I'm sure tons of people checked it out, but... Man, these things just come and go. I know. They're so forgettable. Now. I know. I watched that movie with Gal Gadot, The Rock, and Ryan Reynolds, which you would think is like the biggest cast ever. I don't even remember what it was called. It was like Red Notice or something. Oh, yeah. Just like here and gone. Everything is so disposable when it comes to Netflix. And I just think, I know they're probably paying her a lot of money, and they tried to make it into a whole thing where she's coming out of retirement, blah, 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 blah. But what a waste. Like, who gives a shit? It's a shame. And there's almost a 99% chance that the movie will be unbearably Why bad. Why can't she be coming back for Vanilla Sky 2, reprising her role? I was thinking Bad Teacher 2. Yeah, that would be fun. Just as raunchy and hopefully as politically incorrect as ever. Is there not already a Bad Teacher 2? It seems like there would be. I think there was like maybe going to be at one yeah. point, and it just never happened. I'm thinking maybe there was a Bad Moms 2. I think there was more than a Bad Moms okay. 2. I think there might be like a trilogy. Anyway. <laughs> Craig is living in the shadow of a puppeteer named Derek Mantini. Well, I don't really know. Is that even fair to say? Derek Mantini actually has a career. I, Craig is just a guy. Yeah, it's just funny that there actually is like a successful puppeteer yeah. who conveniently is on the news this morning, <laughs> the same morning that Lottie mentions yeah. a Derek Mantini. And I'm thinking, what world is this? Doing a gimmick, making a mockery of puppeteering the career. A giant Emily Dickinson puppet yeah. off the side of a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> but I did think it was funny that Craig is just one of those guys with like the perpetual rain cloud over his head. And when the world is against you, it's oh, yeah. really against you. So Oh yeah. I You're I, pissed it's not happening. Your wife is sort of egging you on to get a real job, thinking, Okay, maybe this puppet thing's not gonna work out and then you turn on the news and then of course Derek Mantini and his fucking puppet are right there. <laughs> The play that Craig was performing with his puppets when he gets punched in the face by that angry parent is based on the letters of Abelard and Heloise written between 1115 and 1117 AD, which were found, copied, and abridged by Johann de Vepria, a 15th century Cistercian monk, into Ex Apostolis Dorum Amantium, which means from the letters of two lovers. This became a classic document of early romantic and tragic love used by many artists in their work, including William Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet. In addition, 
screenwriter Charlie Kaufman's later project, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, took its title and no small amount of inspiration from Alexander Pope's Eloisa to Abelard. It's a hilarious scene. I know. Just because the absurdity of being the street puppeteer guy yeah, doing and doing this, this show. elaborate show, which is basically two repressed lovers yeah. in ancient times reading these letters to each other and it, then humping the wall like, in the air. All of the mannerisms and expressions from the puppets are hilarious. Like <laughs> yeah, because they somehow reacting work. To things. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they don't change. I know. Well, that's how you know you made a good puppet is yep. when it works. And then when he comes back home with the black eye, Lottie just says, honey, not again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you come up with a line that is so succinct and perfect, and it encapsulates the whole character in the story where you don't even have to explain anything. You just say, oh, honey, not again. Yeah. And it just tells you so much. You understand how horrible this guy's life is. And how horrible he is. Yeah. That he doesn't understand not to do this. And he's just an artist for no one. <laughs> Sort of like this is a podcast for no one. Definitely. <laughs> Craig seems to take the incident on the street as a sign that maybe Lottie is right and he needs to get a real job. A want ad brings him to the Martin Flemmer building. The company he's looking for is called Lestercore, and exactly seven and a half minutes into the film, Craig is standing in the lobby staring at a building directory telling him that Lestercore is located on the seven and a half floor. Mm-hmm. Seven and a half, right? Uh, yeah. I'll take you through it. Welcome to Lester Corp. How may we meet your filing needs? No, no. Um, my name is Craig Schwartz, and I had an interview with Dr. Lester. Oh, uh, please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. Schwartz. Pardon? Schwartz. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I have no idea what you're saying to me right now. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Mr. Juarez? Oh, yes? Chest. I said yes. You suggest what? I'm sorry, I have no time for piddling suggestions from mumbling job applicants. So right away, less than 10 minutes into the film, we're presented with a lot of oddities. Yeah, yeah. We're all of a sudden in like a Harry Potter type world. You're either riding with this. Yeah. Or you're not. I don't know what else to say. I think Charlie Kaufman is a genius. I'm not 
a huge fan of every single thing he's done, but most of the stuff he's done, I love. Mm-hmm. Do I embrace it the same way that I embrace a lot of my other favorite filmmakers stuff or favorite writer stuff? Not necessarily. I do think there's a little bit of a coldness and a distance, but my point is I roll with it. I acknowledge it. But at the same time, I think I can understand people who don't ride with this. And same. they're just like, this is fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> because it is surreal. It right. is not based in reality. Kind of quirky, too. Yeah. There's a lot of weird shit. And a lot of it plays in with the plot and with the message and with the theme and with the story. But some of it doesn't. And that can also be annoying because then it just feels weird for weird's sake. I get all of that. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do get it. I think that if you've made it this far into this episode of the podcast, you probably roll with it too. I do think most people who are into film do like Spike Jones and do like Charlie Kaufman. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I'm not 100% down with every single thing Kaufman's done, but I think the vast majority of it I, I'm pretty into. Yeah, same. I'm trying to think of something that I didn't love of his. I never saw that movie, Human Nature. Oh, me neither. I don't really like Animalisa. I couldn't really roll with that, I guess. But You liked his Netflix movie, though, right? I'm thinking of anythings, yeah. I think we might do that someday on the show, maybe. Oh, I know we're going to do Adaptation, and we already did Eternal Sunshine. Right. And that's, what is it, Synecdoche, New York? Yeah, I don't. I don't know how to say that word either. Yeah. Although I did look up the pronunciation at one point. Well, I know it's it takes place in Schenectady, so I always think that it's supposed to be a play on. I words, know what the but... word means. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know how to. It's yeah, like I don't Schenectady Sine- or yeah, yeah. It's a play on Schenectady, but it means like when you take a part of something to describe the whole thing. Yeah. So if you say, "Oh, my parents bought me a car." For my 16th birthday, can't wait to take out the new set of wheels. Mm-hmm. When you say set of wheels to describe a car, yeah. that's what a synecdoche is. Gotcha. Or you say that okay. word? It's stupid. Uh-huh. I, I've only ever watched that movie once. I did think it was pretty cool and great, although I'd, I'd probably need to see it again. But yeah, we might do that too if yeah. we keep doing this podcast True. for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Anything's on the table. So yeah, I think it has a pretty high batting average, but I am allowing for people to maybe not dig this it is a very specific thing in a way because it's so weird yeah on the elevator brief appearance by octavia spencer oh yeah who uses the crowbar to open the elevator at the seven and a half floor which area like, sets off that like fire alarm or whatever like well, every yeah, time it happens the emergency yeah. stop to stop the elevator <laughs> so annoying yeah yeah, but the whole time that they're on this seventh floor, they have to like crouch. Yeah. They have the low ceilings. It's like my basement. You would think that people would just get into chairs with wheels and just stay seated because True. you're going to hurt your neck Yeah, walking around like that. It'd be appropriate height for me. I wouldn't have to. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> but I was kind enough to not actually yeah. put that joke into my notes. <laughs> it's like the Shire. Mary Kay Place. Yeah, from the Big Chill. Plays Floris, the receptionist, secretary, although specifically not a secretary, right. executive liaison yeah. at this office <laughs> at Lester Corps. Yeah, I was thinking more of smooth talk, but okay. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> I think what Kaufman and 
Jones have done here by adding all of these weird character quirks, this secretary woman who seemingly can't understand anything that Craig is saying, and then her responses are weird, and then he doesn't know what to do, and all of this different stuff. You're on a weird floor that you wouldn't have known how to get off on, and then you have to crouch down, and then you're in this weird office. They've built this surreal world of anxiety, not fitting in, nothing makes sense, things going wrong beyond your control, Uh helplessness. The character of Charlie Kaufman in Adaptation is a more normal, naturalistic, real-world example of this, but this is like a surreal version where it's almost like a dream or a nightmare Uh where it's not exactly scary, but you can't make it work. You can't get things to go right because nothing makes sense, and this woman is saying that she can't hear you, and then it's making everything weirder and more uncomfortable and awkward. And then he has this interview with Dr. Lester himself, and then Dr. Lester's talking about having indecipherable speech, but he sounds completely normal, and then it's this whole thing that goes on between him and Floris where it's it's beyond bizarre. Oh, yeah. You have no idea what's going on at this point. Mr. Juarez thing. <laughs> Everything is insane. Yeah. I think if this was me, I would be walking out and saying, I can't work. I know. This is too bizarre. Oh, come in, uh, Mr. Juarez. Actually, my name is Craig Schwartz, Dr. Lester. Security! No, sir, it's... It's just a little mix-up with your secretary. My name is Craig Schwartz. I tried to explain that to her. She's not my secretary. She's what they call an executive liaison. Ah. And I'm not banging her, if that's what you're implying. No, sir, not at all. I think I must have simply misspoke. Ah. Well, now, tell me, Dr. Schwartz, what do you feel you can bring to Lester Corp? Uh, Well, sir, I'm an excellent filer. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's see about that. Tell me, which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. (laughs) I was trying to trick you. (laughs) Well, then, put these in order. Yes, sir. Flores, get Guinness on the phone. (laughs) Uh, Yes, sir. Gingis Concapone. Fine. Damn fine woman, Flores. I don't know how she puts up with this speech impediment of mine. You don't have a speech impediment, Dr. Lester. Flattery will get you everywhere, my boy. (laughs) I'm afraid I have to trust Flores on that one. You see, uh, she's got her doctorate in speech impedimentology from Case Western. I apologize if you can't understand a word I'm saying. No, I understand perfectly. It's very kind of you to lie. You see, I've been very uh, lonely in my isolated tower of indecipherable speech. You got the job. Any questions? Well, just one. Why are these ceilings so low? Low overhead, my boy. We pass the savings on to you. (laughs) But seriously, that'll all be covered in uh, orientation. (laughs) 
Everything we've seen thus far would be plenty enough fertile ground for dozens of other films, comedy sketches, TV series, or novels, but being John Malkovich keeps rolling onward, slyly unveiling each new discovery or peculiarity to keep us guessing and on our toes. Marionettes, chimps on the couch, Mm -hmm. the absurdity of life on the seven and a half floor, a secretary with a hearing problem who claims to have a doctorate in speech impedimentology I can't even say (laughs) it's a made up word and I have a speech impediment trying to say it from Case Western and a boss who buys into her gaslighting entirely (laughs) all of these ingredients would work well enough on their own but here they provide fascinating backdrop for what's to come because at this point we still don't even know how this movie ties in with John Malkovich or what the fuck this title even means But we're like 15 minutes in, and it's like, what the fuck is going on? Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Flummer Building. As you'll now be spending your workday here, it is important that you learn a bit about the history of this famous floor. Hello, Don. Hello, Wendy. Don, I was wondering... Do you know why our workplace has such low ceilings? It's an interesting story, Wendy. Many years ago, in the late 1800s, James Merton, an Irish ship captain, came to this town and decided to erect an office building. He called this building the Merton Flimmer Building, after himself and someone else who local legend has it was named Flimmer. Well, one day, old Captain Merton received an unexpected visitor. Captain Merton? I would want you, girl child. I'm not a child, but rather an adult lady of miniature proportions. Well, see. Well, if it's charity you're after, begun with you, you foul demon. I'm not asking for alms, Captain, but rather the ear of a kind man with a noble heart. Well, speak then if you must. Captain Merton, I'm afraid that the world was not built with me in mind. Doorknobs are too high, chairs are unwieldy, and high ceiling rooms mock my stature. Why cannot there be a place for me to work in safe and comfortable? The story has moved me like the other. Therefore, I shall make ye <coughs> me wife. And and I shall build a floor for ye between the, between the seventh and the eighth in my own building. So at least there'll be one place on God's green earth where ye and your accursed kind can live in peace. So that's the story of seven and a half. Since the rents are considerably lower, this floor has been adopted by businesses which, for one reason or another, have been forced to cut corners. After all, the overhead is low. (laughs) (laughs) And then they have this orientation video for working on the floor. (laughs) But there's so many laughs woven in here, though. When he goes in, no, that's not my name. I'm Mr. Schwartz or whatever, and he goes, security. (laughs) So quick. Craig develops an immediate attraction to co-worker Maxine Lund, played by Catherine Keener, who does not return his affections. The first time he tries to talk to her, she just abandons the conversation halfway through and starts sighing and doesn't respond. This kind of is part of her gimmick, though. You have to give Craig credit. He has no business whatsoever talking to I this know. woman. <laughs> yes, he's trying to cheat on his wife, but at the same time, even if I was 100% single and I knew that 
Maxine was single too, there's no scenario where mm-hmm. I would feel <laughs> comfortable talking to no. her. <laughs> Keener later cited being John Malkovich as an instance of her taking up a role based on the director's previous work. She had heard about Jones's experience with music videos and took up the part of Maxine, although she initially disliked the character and did not feel that she was right for the part. Of course, she was subsequently nominated for an Oscar for her work. And then back at home, after seeing this vision of loveliness at work, this scary, sexy woman, there's this nightmare with these fucking animals I know. screeching and the neighbor yelling because it's the horror movie. animals are loud. I know. It is a minefield, though, at Lester Court, too. Floris, the secretary who pretends not to understand anything anyone says, makes a bizarre pass at Craig. Really? Craig is not interested saying he's in love with someone else, which I think is odd because he's most likely talking about Maxine, (laughs) who he just met. I would have been interested, though. I was willing to go here with our executive liaison. Dr. Lester says he is 105 years old and is in love with Floris, and he's also determined to share his sexual fantasies and desires with Craig, at one point later telling him, my spunk is to you, manna from heaven. Not Craig, but he's as if he's saying this to the woman. (laughs) An odd thing to hear from an 105-year-old man. Well, because of how the movie is, and because of all of these weird things being thrown at you, including the seven and a half floor, and the chimp, and all this different stuff, and... Floris being weird and not being able to hear. You think that, I don't mean that deaf people are weird, but she's not deaf, right. I think is the thing that you have to understand. She's pretending because clearly when Craig rejects her, yes. she walks away saying bastard. Yeah. And she heard everything you said fine. It's some weird thing that's going on. Anyway, you kind of think that the 105-year-old thing is a throwaway thing too, and you almost forget about that later. Right. But then it all actually does mean something. Craig stammers and stumbles around Maxine, who toys with him like a cat playing with her food, which is funny. She doesn't completely ignore him. She doesn't completely just tell him to fuck off and get mad and blow a rape whistle or anything. True. She clearly does have a little bit of fun being a bitch to him. Absolutely. And fucking with him. Yes. And that just makes it even worse in a way. I want to feel Flores's naked thighs next to mine. I want my body to inspire lust in that beautiful, complex woman. I want her to shiver with a spasm of ecstasy, Schwartz, as I penetrate her Dr. wet... Dr. Lester, while I'm flattered you would share your feelings with me, perhaps the workplace is not the most suitable environment for this type of discussion. Uh, you're right, all right. I tell you what, meet me after work today at Jerry's Juiceteria on Lex, and I'll spill my goddamn guts for you. No, no, I won't be late, Lana. I just have to, you know, listen to Lester's sexual fantasies to bring carrot juice for a while. You know, it's a job thing, really. Yeah, so, um, I'll talk to you later, okay? Yep, you too. Gotta go back to work. Okay, bye. Hi. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? Yeah. Um, okay, how about this? If I can guess your name in three tries, you have to come have a drink with me tonight. Why not? Okay. You look like a 
Carol tell share Susanne Maxine? Yeah. Who told you? Nobody told me. That just came out. Don't you think that's isn't that odd? So where where do you live and stuff? I am dubious, but I don't Welsh. Okay, meet me at the Stuck Pig, seven o'clock. If you're late, I walk. Ebert succinctly sums up Maxine in his review, where he says, "Craig meets a coworker named Maxine, played by Catherine Keener, and lusts for her. She asks, "Are you married?" He says, "Yeah, but enough about me." They go out for a drink. He says, I'm a puppeteer. She says, waiter, check, please. <laughs> Keener has this way of listening with her lips slightly parted as if eager to interrupt by deconstructing what you just said and exposing you for the fool that you are. Hmm. Sounds like when I try to talk on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Usually I'm just panicking because I'm thinking about how oh, I'm going to no. have to edit out all of the <laughs> stammering and stumbling around. And offensive points that i'm making (laughs) yeah if you only heard unfiltered matt (laughs) oh god to me maxine is gorgeous and frightening she's got a giant mouth full of white teeth she reminds me of a shark okay yeah can smell blood in the water she refers to craig as dog boy at one point yeah which i'm sure gave him a chubby fucking creep yep (laughs) Maxine, Maxine, made it, made it, Maxine. Just buy a drink, Maxine, Maxine. Are you married? Yeah, but, but enough about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what do you have? Uh, I'll have more of the same, please, Barry. And I'll have uh, light beers. Hi. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I like you. I don't know what it is about you. I just my tits. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no. It's your energy, your attitude. You know the way you carry yourself. You're not a fag, are you? No, no, no I am really attracted. No, to you. I, I really am really attracted to you, Christ. You are a fag. Okay, well, we can share recipes if you like, darling. No, 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 wait. Listen, listen. I love your tits. I love good. It. I want to fuck. Great. You. Now we're getting somewhere. Not a chance. <laughs> So tell me about yourself. Huh? I mean, if you can get your mind out of the gutter long enough, dog boy. <laughs> well, I'm a puppeteer. I've been... Check. When Craig gets home after going to the bar with Maxine, there's a lot of overcompensation with the worried Lottie. And then he even says, as if in defense of him showing up so late without calling, you wanted me to work. Like he puts it on her. Yeah. <laughs> Shitty. But then in all fairness, she says that the chimp isn't feeling good and he's going to be sleeping in the bed with Oh, What a horrid existence. So yeah, look, Craig's a piece of shit. Sure. Lottie seems like a nice person. If he wants to get out of the marriage because of the pets or because of any other reason... Well, we might as well just address it now. I'm not going to be able to edit all Whole this out. Scene Jesus going Christ, out there. there's so many sirens out this window. Cat stuck in a tree. But the bottom line is you just got to be honest and end the marriage if you're not interested anymore. 
Yeah, but that's a lot of paperwork. Well, <laughs> I think yeah. that doing this is just hurtful. Sure. And makes everything so much worse. Definitely. Although, Lottie the truth is that he starts, won't end the marriage yeah. because he knows he's not really going to get with Maxine. Right. And so it would be all be for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the coward. But... He makes a Maxine puppet instead to play out the fantasy as if she was actually interested in him. This is as creepy as one can be. In real life, she is hilariously mean and disinterested. She always makes comments as asking if he's still playing with dolls and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But yet, in this fantasy, she's so impressed by his puppeteering (laughs) skills Look, we've all done some really sad things in our lives. Not quite to this level, though. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Depends. I'm sure there's some sure. young ladies out there that <laughs> would think that this stories. podcast would be well, just as sad. <laughs> One afternoon, while filing at work, Craig inadvertently discovers a small hidden door behind a cabinet. He crawls through it, entering a tunnel as if in a cave and not in between walls in some New York City building, and then is propelled forward until he finds himself inside the mind of actor John Malkovich. Craig is an undetected passenger seeing the world through Malkovich's eyes. After approximately 15 minutes, Craig is ejected, landing on the side of the New Jersey turnpike. Now imagine if this movie had gone with a different title, and you're just thrust into this moment (laughs) what would an alternative title be i don't know craig sucks (laughs) kill yourself craig (laughs) so what are we seeing here what do we make of this this is insane i know that we probably overuse words like that yeah and the various synonyms wild crazy nuts whatever but even if you do know the title but you're not really sure what the plot is, let's say. I don't really know if anything can quite prepare you for this because it's so next level. Because to this point, the movie's been quirky. It's been weird. Right. This is a whole other leap. But this is science fiction now in what didn't really seem like it was going to be a science fiction film. This is something that obviously is impossible, but it, it speaks to a fantasy element that we may have been unprepared for. But... The fact that it's so hyper-specific, it's John Malkovich that you're going into. It's not someone you know, you don't get to choose it, but it's someone that we all know. It's an actor, which makes it meta in some sense. Right. Because if it was, oh, I ended up inside Dr. Lester, or I ended up inside Maxine, which is what Craig wants, I guess. But (laughs) Yeah. Folks. But you know what I'm saying. (laughs) If it was somebody connected to the building or to the story in some way then it would be a whole different thing. But this is some weird twist now where it's an actor that we know in the real world outside of this story. They don't say, oh, this is some random guy who's played Mm -hmm. by John Malkovich. It is John Malkovich. But it ends up turning into the ultimate puppeteering experience eventually. This is what Craig feels like puppeteering is. This is how he describes it when he's trying to make Maxine think it's not as terrible as she seems to think it is, or as dorky. Yeah. You get to try on someone else's skin. You get to right. f- feel what they feel and their emotions. Control and... other people's consciousness. Yeah. While inside of Malkovich this first time, this 
starts off this recurring joke of the Jewel Thief movie that yes. John Malkovich was never actually in by this point in his career. And that sort of plays into why Malkovich is the right choice. Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of knows him. But couldn't say from what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would probably most associate Malkovich pre-1999 with Dangerous Liaisons, which is a movie I did not see until after Same. 1999. I'd- Yet... I think I knew who he was, I guess, kind of. I had probably seen The Man in the Iron Mask. I had definitely seen it, but I don't know that I would have remembered right. who was in it. same. Craig's first instinct after he's ejected from Malkovich is to immediately tell Maxine, and he touches on a little bit of the philosophical nature of the film. He's talking about a metaphysical quandary, the existence of souls. This really brings into question... Who are we as humans? Why do we exist? I mean, it, it just, it's a Pandora's box. Yeah. This of, would make your head explode. It's a blast of all of these different existential mm-hmm. thoughts, questions of reality, identity, all of those different things. However, Maxine, who for some reason decides to believe Craig, which is something that is never really fully addressed or explained in the film. Yeah, very quick to go with it without really having a reaction. Other than who the fuck is John Malkovich. Yeah. Her first reaction, eventually, I guess, is to see this as a money-making opportunity. She realizes they can sell the experience for profit. She's easily able to convince Craig, who's desperate for any kind of chance with her, to go along with whatever she says. But in order to explain while he'll suddenly be occupied overnight, Craig tells Lottie about the Portal 2, glossing over the fact that his new partner is a woman mm-hmm. he's hot for. When Craig describes the experience to his wife, she's eager to try it for herself, which opens up a can of worms that he could have never foreseen. When Lottie enters the Portal, it's a profound experience for her. She enters Malkovich's brain while he's in the shower, and she is exhilarated by this. Right away, she becomes obsessed, desperate to return. That same night, she and Craig visit Dr. Lester's home, and Lottie inadvertently discovers a room filled with pictures of Malkovich and Malkovich memorabilia. But it's deeper than that. It's not just his career as an actor. It's a shrine tracking Malkovich's entire life. It is borderline unsettling. So there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. The one thing I noticed with this movie is it's very dense. Sure. Things happen very quickly and a lot of stuff. Right. So you're moving from one thing to the next. You're going into these weird series of events. This is almost a curveball because it's introducing a connection that you were not expecting to exist. Yeah. I would say that you're probably thinking at that point, once they discover the portal, that it's unrelated to anything else. Because... Mm -hmm. To this point in the movie, everything has felt like disparate, yeah, yeah. separate entities going off in different directions, and a lot of it feels unresolved, weirdness for weirdness sake, if you will, but then you figure out eventually here, fairly early in the film, that Dr. Lester must be connected to this in some way, though we don't know mm-hmm. how or why, and I also think it's interesting that Lottie does not mention this to Craig, and so... You have to believe that her first experience 
inside of Malkovich is more than just an awakening for her, which it is, but it's also the first sign of a, a crack in their relationship from her perspective. Obviously, we know from Craig's perspective he's been trying to fuck Maxine, but this is the first time she's done anything that would make you think that she doesn't fully trust her husband, that she isn't fully honest with him. Mm -hmm. Because even when she has her big awakening about potentially being a transgender person because she feels like she's her true self for the first time inside Malkovich, she still doesn't mention this. She mentions that, which is a very personal thing, but this seems like some kind of a secret for some reason. Yeah, Lottie shows up at the Merton Flemmer building unannounced, unable to shake the power of her experience, she meets Maxine for the first time, much to Craig's chagrin, and tells him that her time in Malkovich has awakened her transgender identity. She wants to tell Dr. Feldman. Yeah. I actually thought this was pretty funny when Craig was like, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Feldman's an allergist. <laughs> well, she trusts him. This is something that is ultimately not fully explored in the film. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's very much heading that direction. During this interaction. That's probably due to what happens with Craig Mm -hmm. when he hijacks the whole situation for himself later. Maybe if he hadn't done that, then we would continue on with Lottie's personal journey of self-discovery. But ultimately, even at the end of the film, it doesn't seem like she's fully committed to this. But yeah, it's interesting because... Through the power of science fiction, or I I don't even know if that's really the right word. Maybe it's closer to fantasy, because I don't really know if there's any kind of scientific element to this at all. But it allows people to experience life in a whole new body, but obviously women can do it too, which Mm -hmm. is what happens with Lottie. And then it, it, it sort of allows her to find her true self for the first time. When Lottie enters the portal again and is inside Malkovich, Maxine calls and entices him into a meeting. There's some stuff where you just got to roll with the movie. She calls somebody who's somehow able to get her Malkovich's home phone number. I I don't know who she calls or how this happens. She's always on her cell phone with people that we don't know. She's always got something. She's got a lot of connections out there. She's cooking. Yep. So, okay. Do you think Maxine does this on purpose? Is she immediately intrigued by Lottie in some way and wants to... Hard to get a read there. Why else would she do this, though? It has to be that. (laughs) Okay. Well, first you said hard to get a read, and now you've changed. I don't don't know. know. I didn't really think of it that way, but... Her motivations are hard to follow for a while. She's a mysterious woman. Yes. I do think it has something to do with either an interest in Lottie and she's overhearing this whole confession she's making to Craig and she's interested in it, or she wants to fuck with Craig. Yeah. I don't know. Lottie is adamant that she must return to the portal for the meeting, though she is initially unaware that the woman who called Malkovich when Lottie was inside of him was Maxine. So mm-hmm. what happens is Lottie goes to the other room, goes into the portal, She's experiencing the Malkovich thing when Maxine calls and she's being very flirtatious on the phone trying to entice him into a dinner right. or a date or something. And this is another further thrill 
for Lottie, who liked having a penis and touching the penis and drying it in the shower, and yep. now is also hearing Enjoying, this Enjoying um, Maxine kind of putting the press on. Yeah, but she doesn't know it's Maxine at this point, but yeah. Maxine's saying wild things, and she likes that feeling of having a woman say these things to her. Mm-hmm. When Malkovich gets a little stern with Maxine on the phone, what does she say? My nipples are erect, oh, yeah. Mr. Malkovich. <laughs> My nipples sir. are full attention. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that would be wild. Yeah, I know. If a woman called and started saying that. I know, I was getting a little anxious. <laughs> but once the date is actually happening, and Lottie is back in Malkovich and, and sees that it's Maxine, she is completely smitten. When I was doing my research and looking at different videos and finding out what clips we could use and all of my different stuff, I came across this recap for the film being John Malkovich on YouTube, which had the title Girl Possesses Man's Body to Clap Cheeks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. I was fucking losing it. It can get very confusing when you bring emotions into it and you have all these different things happening and people are entering Malkovich and you're not sure who's who and what each person feels, but that's what makes something interesting. Lottie seemingly wants to be a man, or at least she wants to be Malkovich specifically. She's also attracted to Maxine. Maxine actually reciprocates, unlike how she feels with Craig, but only when Lottie is inside Malkovich. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't like Malkovich on his own, which is also weird and interesting. For what it's worth, Malkovich claimed that he approached the character of John Malkovich as he would any other fictional role, and that the only thing about his real life that was reflected in the film is his wardrobe. But we see that this company, Craig and Maxine, have started. JM Inc. is up and running. There's this guy who shows up, the first customer we see, who refers to himself as a sad, fat man. Sure, relatable. I love how he's launching into this whole thing about himself, and Maxine's like, $200? Just cuts him off. (laughs) To be John Malkovich, and he's like, well, that was my second choice. (laughs) Yeah, that felt like a very specific joke. Because (laughs) if you thought that you could be anybody, and you were making a list, and what world is John Malkovich (laughs) number two on anyone's list? Maxine comes over for dinner with Craig and Lottie, both of them shamelessly trying to win her over in their own pathetic ways, neither of which are very attractive. Sure. Craig saying, I'll show you my puppets after dinner. Rough. He can't accept the fact that she doesn't care about the puppets. No, and he's making it worse with every sentence that comes out of his mouth. And then they both jump on her at the same time. I know. Bizarre. (laughs) It's still a hard no for Craig, but in Lottie's case, she's in as long as she can be inside Malkovich. Got to imagine after that dinner, pretty awkward vibe in the house. A lot of qualifiers to be in a relationship with Maxine. Well, that's true. It takes a very specific situation. Well, I do think that the movie dabbles in the complexities of love and human emotion and... It's actually sort of... What it takes to keep someone's attention captured. Well, I think it's ahead of its time, too, with the 
different things that people can be attracted to and Mm -hmm. more than just heterosexual or homosexual, but all kinds of different things. And she has this very hyper specific thing that she's attracted to, which is Lottie inside Malkovich. Yes. (laughs) I don't really know how or what, I guess maybe it can be interpreted as some sort of a transgender commentary. I, I really don't know if that's what, Charlie Kaufman was going for or not, but it is very unique in that it has to be this woman, these parameters occupying the mind of yes. this man. But in the meantime, JM Inc. is bumping lots of people coming and doing this experience. I don't know if there's like a word of mouth thing, I don't know who's reading this classified ad and thinking, Yeah, this sounds like something I want to do. Yeah, it's so vague. Craig, poor business model for him. He really doesn't need to have a business partner here, but just his unrequited love for Maxine. Right. Continuing along. She's monetizing this thing that he discovered and she doesn't really know anything about. But it was her idea, I guess, yeah. to do that. They don't really need each other in any way, shape, or form. That's right. Doing like the business taxes for this company i got a feeling this is under the book yeah under the table off the books <laughs> yeah, i would think straight cash homie at lottie's urging maxine manipulates malkovich into having sex with her while lottie is in his mind so yes her attraction to malkovich is contingent upon lottie being part of the equation but if you pay attention maxine says when she calls in the original newspaper ad that jm inc is open from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m. Wow. Later, when Lottie calls her and asks her to set up a date with Malkovich, she says, tonight after you close, and Maxine suggests 4.11. This means that her subsequent visit to Malkovich's apartment takes place at 4.11 a.m., not p.m., and that Malkovich is wearing a full suit and tie. (laughs) receiving a visitor at 4.11 a.m. Like, he's the fucking wolf in Pulp Fiction. That's right. <laughs> the dude's got it bad already. And, I mean, who can blame him? Yeah, Maxine is a fox. This super foxy chick just showing up for a booty call. I know. And she's got that there's something going on here <laughs> vibe. Yeah, you want to be a part of that vibe. Yeah, exactly. You want to be a part of whatever's going on. Maxine waits and makes sure that Lottie is in there, and then she's saying hi Mm -hmm. and trying to talk to Lottie. She's saying, I love you, Lottie. And (laughs) Malkovich is a little bit put off by this, but then she's like, do you mind? And he's like, well, I guess not. (laughs) Just rolling with being called Lottie. At least that's what he thinks is happening. Right. When Lottie gets home, Craig is devastated, and Lottie has maybe one of her best lines. Well, you have the Maxine action figure to play with. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Just brutal. (laughs) That feels like that part in Seinfeld when Elaine confronts Jerry over the nude drawings of Lois Lane. Yeah. And he's like, those are private. (laughs) (laughs) Craig doesn't even know how to react to her knowing that he has a Maxine puppet. (laughs) I know. That's private. (laughs) (laughs) Tough to go on living after something like that. Yeah, I don't know that you can really save the marriage. No. (laughs) Lottie's like. Why does Elijah the Chimp have a Maxine mask on? What were you doing, Craig? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Unthinkable. Craig says 
you're evil, Maxine. To which she replies, do you have any idea what it's like to have two people look at you with total lust and devotion through the same pair of eyes? Wow. No, I don't suppose you would. (laughs) Which is a a very specific thing that no one would probably know because right. what does that even mean two but people through the same pair of eyes but least when she of all, says it Craig Yeah but when she <laughs> says it, it is like a cutting yeah, I know. remark right <laughs> At this point Craig is fucked he found this really cool thing which is almost secondary to the fact that he started a job fell in love with this woman that does not like him but treats him like shit in the way that some men really like. Definitely. A mean, beautiful woman. Present company not excluded. (laughs) (laughs) And it blew up in his face, and now somehow his wife has co-opted the cool thing he found at work. I know. And now using that cool thing to carry on her own version of an affair with the woman that he likes. Talk about the ultimate backfire. Well, this really stinks, you know? This is some fucking bullshit. (laughs) Forsaken by both his actual wife and the woman he desires, Craig runs home, jumps Lottie, and at gunpoint forces her to set another Malkovich-related hookup with Maxine. He then duct tapes Lottie's mouth and locks her inside one of her many animal cages Craig inhabits Malkovich during the lovemaking with Maxine, and during it, he discovers that his puppeteering skills allow him some control over Malkovich, causing him to reach for Maxine's breast and say certain specific words. Maxine believes it's Lottie in there, and Malkovich himself is completely freaked out. And it's played in a way that, from Craig's perspective, seems so creepy and over the top and if she knew that it was craig it would be you know what i mean yeah like i'm wondering if under a 2023 microscope if this thing would feel a little bit more rapey if i there think would so be some discussion uh, yeah. about this I, I do think that it's interesting because it's not the same as a physical rape i guess it's more of a mental or emotional yeah thing she's being deceived yeah, it's sort of like overboard. Yeah. <laughs> Rape by deception. <laughs> exactly. And then it's also weird because it's one of those things where once she finds out the truth, she sort of goes with it. Yeah. And is into it. They are all raping Malkovich mentally. Totally. They're all taking advantage of Malkovich. He's the victim more than anyone else. Absolutely. The fact that these three clowns are running around victimizing each other. I know. Is almost secondary to the fact that they're all and when you get to doing the this. end of the movie, and they talk about Malkovich as a vessel, and that's what he is. This guy, the toll that this has to take on somebody. Well, yeah. At a this, certain point, he only gets to be himself for a moment, yeah. and then he's back to never being himself ever again. I know. But if you're to believe the whole lineage of the deal, then this is something that just keeps happening over and over with different people. Mm-hmm. The play that Malkovich is rehearsing on stage is William Shakespeare's Richard III. The lines, Was ever a woman in this humor wooed? Was ever a woman in this humor won? Where Richard is gloating over his use of power, lies, and crime to obtain the woman he desires, Lady Anne. This rehearsal scene is immediately followed by the first time that Craig has sex with Maxine via Malkovich. So it's a little bit of a 
a parallel yeah. idea there. No, man, I'm sorry to... I'm sorry to have called you like that, but I was just really, really scared. And I was so freaked out. I mean, it was like somebody was just moving all the way through me, moving my arms, moving my hands, talking for me. I mean, I, I literally, I feel like I'm going crazy, Charlie. I'm sure you're not going crazy. You don't understand, man. It's like nothing yeah, I've ever yeah, felt. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Were you stoned? Yes. Yes, uh, Jesus. Yes. Yes, I was stoned. But what the, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Charlie, someone was talking through my mouth. You were stoned. Case closed, end of story. How hot is this, babe? You know what? Maybe it was this Lottie woman talking, because it could have been her talking through me. Because the, this, the weird thing is this Maxine likes to call me Lottie. Ouch. That is hot. Maybe she's using you to, to channel some dead lesbian lover. Sounds like my kind of gal. Let me know when you're done with her, yeah? What are you talking about? Done with her, man. Tonight really freaked me out. You're nuts to let a girl go that calls you Lottie. I'll tell you that as a friend. Charlie, I don't know anything about the girl, man. She could be like a fucking witch or something. That's even better. Hot lesbian witches. Think about it. It's fucking genius. I gotta know the truth, Charlie. Truth is for suckers, Johnny boy. Disturbed by his loss of control, Malkovich confides in his friend Charlie Sheen. <laughs> in a fun scene. Becoming suspicious of Maxine. Sheen, not exactly understanding Malkovich's concerns, he thinks it's all just hot. <laughs> he thinks maybe Maxine is communicating with a dead lesbian lover or that they're all witches or something. He thinks this is all awesome. This sort of seems like a conversation you and I would have in the set me up with, Yeah, except for the part where he's like, set me up with her when you're done with her. <laughs> Just a whole other world. Yeah. Originally in the script, it was written as Kevin Bacon for this character, but Malkovich suggested Sheen instead, and I think it works perfectly. It plays more into the meta quality due to the nature of the conversation that they have right. that feels like something Charlie Sheen would say. Well, it only gets better with age because of the persona <laughs> that Charlie Sheen would go on to be. Yeah, he was already sort of dipping his toe into that persona, uh-huh, but right. yeah, over the next 20 or so years, yeah. In order to find out the truth, Malkovich secretly tells Maxine later that night following her to the office where she and Craig are charging customers to use the portal. This is another reminder of how much the world has changed because we're talking about 1999 relationships. No texting going on right now between Maxine and Lottie, two people who are not only falling in love, but they have to fall in love in a very specific way mm-hmm. where you have to like use a proxy. And it's a reminder that you could literally be held captive in a cage for days in 1999 and your significant other wouldn't know the difference (laughs) because you're not constantly texting each other yeah there's so much more disconnect going on different time it was so much better yes (laughs) you could breathe a little bit more (laughs) when malkovich follows maxine getting off the elevator on the seventh and a half floor he finds a line of men at jm inc by the way just no real security in this building no Discovering what the people are waiting for, Malkovich freaks, confronting Craig and Maxine. 
Excuse me, sir. Exactly what uh, type of service does this company provide? You get to be John Malkovich for 15 minutes. 200 clams. I see. No cutting, by the way. Hey, what's that? No cutting! Hey, hey, don't cut! Break it up! Break it up! Cut it out! Everybody gets it! It's him, Mr. John. I'm so sorry, Mr. Malkovich. I, I hope we didn't hurt you too terribly. Get inside! Get you Darn what the fuck is going on? Uh, 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 huh? John Malkovich. John, Mr. Malkovich, sir. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Mr. Malkovich, I think I can explain. Yeah, explain. My name is Craig Schwartz. Uh. And we operate a little business here that simulates for our clientele, well, the... The experience of of, of of being you, actually. Simulate? Yeah, after fashion. What exactly does that mean? Well, it's hard to describe. I want to do it, then. Well, I'm sure that would pale in comparison to the actual experience. I want to do it! But right now, Mr. Hiroshi's in the tube, and he's Let got to about... do it, Craig. Of course. Right, right this way, Mr. Malkovich. Compliments of the house. Malkovich demands to try the experience for himself. Entering the portal, he finds himself in a world full of John Malkovich's... Frightening. And all of these clones only say the word Malkovich over and over, including himself. Would you be so quick to want to try this if it were you? I don't know. (laughs) I feel like that's an impossible question to answer because it's so absurd. I know. (laughs) I think I would. Yeah. Although maybe you'd cause a I, well, paradox I've, that would end the, the world. <laughs> I've seen enough movies to know that it would be some sort of Back to the Future type logic. Yeah, you would come out wanting to fuck your mom. <laughs> you know, or your mom wanting to fuck you. Or whatever. The surreal factor goes off the charts in these moments. It's a lot of existential dread. It's completely paradoxical. A hallucinatory nightmare. Yes. Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. And then <laughs> everything on the menu, Malkovich. The real Malkovich in the moment freaking out, but he can only Malkovich, Malkovich. Yeah. After he is ejected, Malkovich demands that Craig close the portal, but Craig refuses. And in one of the most hilarious moments in the movie that made me feel like if I was a celebrity, this is what my life would be like. Someone just drives by and throws like a can <laughs> at John Malkovich. <laughs> How was it? It was amazing this time. That was no simulation! Oh I know, I'm sorry. I such an honor. I have been to the dark side. I have seen a world that no man should see. Really, for most people, it was a rather pleasant experience. I mean... That portal is mine, and it must be sealed forever for the love of God. But, Mr. Malcolm, sir, with all due respect, I discovered that portal. I mean... It's my livelihood, do you understand? It's my head, Schwartz. It's my head. 
I will see you in court. What makes you think I won't be seeing what you're seeing in court? Hey, Malkovich, think fast! <laughs> Fuck! Malkovich says, I will see you in court. To which Craig responds, what makes you think I won't be seeing what you're seeing in court? Pretty good line. Definitely. Like, what are you going to do about it? And to touch on what you just mentioned, the scene when a can is thrown at John Malkovich's head is real in the sense that he actually got hit with a can. Malkovich has described how Spike Jones wanted to cut it due to running late at night, expecting that no one would be able to hit him on the head with a half-full can of beer from a passing car when about 70 or 80 sets of hands shot up on the crew saying that they would like to try. (laughs) Eventually, the task fell to John Cusack's writing partner, and he nailed it on the first try. Wow, a well-executed action set piece. There was a rumor, thanks mostly to Spike Jones on his director commentary, that this was real in the sense that it was unscripted. And that it, they just captured like a, a somebody driving by, <laughs> but that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. How would the person know it was John Malkovich I know. from behind? There is a great reaction from Malkovich when he's hit with the can. That's pretty funny. But yeah, it was one of those things which reminds you of the nature of internet research when it comes to talking about these films. Like mm-hmm. he says that on a commentary, it gets put on IMDb in different places for oh, years yeah. until eventually gets cleared up by Malkovich himself in an AMA on Reddit where someone asked about it and he explained like what happened and how it was in the script and then Jones wanted to cut it because they didn't think they'd be able to do it and blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, oh, well, that whole story he told on the commentary was bullshit, I guess, just to be funny. So, you know, Uh that's how a lot of this shit gets. Playing with the meta universe of this movie beyond (laughs) what you see on screen. Yeah. Meanwhile, Lottie... Still in the cage, spitting straight facts about Craig and Maxine. <laughs> it's <laughs> never going to happen. Right. Craig seems a little remorseful, but yeah. not enough to actually let her go. Well, he's downright criminal at this point. He's like, I, I love you, Lottie. No coming back from this. I know. He, what does he think is going to happen now? But despite his guilt, he has Lottie set up another Malkovich rendezvous with Maxine. Maxine, obviously very confident in her own abilities, believing Malkovich would still be in after finding out what she was up to with the portal. Seriously. She's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll give him a call. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, he just freaked out (laughs) in their office. (laughs) This really cracked me up this time around because it's one of those things that just happens when you're watching a two-hour movie that's fucking nuts. And you move on with your life. Right. But when you're actually taking the time to note things and track things and be like, okay, this is what happens and this is what happens. I could not believe that this was in this movie. And it's so fucking crazy. Yeah. As if this movie isn't insane enough, Lottie's pet chimp has a flashback. (laughs) Complete with subtitles. Right. Which inspires him to untie Lottie and free her. Well, they had a good relationship. That's that. That's just, something that happened. Just in the accept movie. it. <laughs> Back into the jungle or wherever the chimp was from, there was a flashback. So she calls Maxine to warn her 
that it's been Craig inhabiting Malkovich most recently, but it sort of backfires because Maxine I know. is attracted to Craig's ability to control Malkovich. I just wrote, see, the puppeteering thing did pay off. That's right. <laughs> she finally thinks it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Look, mm-hmm. I, it's a morally gray area, this Definitely. whole thing. I think the one thing that you can hang your hat on is that ultimately everyone in the film, with the possible exception of Malkovich, who just seems like kind of a oblivious douchebag, but pretty innocent. Everyone else is not kind good. of terrible. Yeah. To varying degrees. Even I mean, Lottie starts off seeming like the innocent, but she gets caught up in this game too. Well, even the idea of inhabiting Malkovich while he's having sex, right. or even at all, yeah, yeah. really. It's a violation. To play out her own desires. Yeah, everyone has selfish motivations. Mm-hmm. Maxine meets up with Malkovich, who at first tells her to fuck off, but then Craig takes control, and she's totally into that. During the session, Craig discovers he can occupy Malkovich indefinitely rather than just a mere 15 minutes. <laughs> How he figures this out? They gave you the little taste when yeah. he was able to manipulate Malkovich's body and vocal cords and whatnot the first time around. And then this time he explains it to Maxine where he says that you kind of have to look at it like you're making friends with his subconscious rather than trying to suppress it and take it hostage, which is sort of a bullshit way of explaining it. But What's the best they can really do with this? He's a puppeteer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He knows things. He performs Craig's Dance of Despair and Dissolution. I know. I wrote that down, too. <laughs> An unbelievable title. Through Malkovich's body. There is some internal struggle with Malkovich, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Malkovich does give a great performance where he's acting as if there's two things inside of him mm-hmm. fighting it out for control. Maxine is a 1,000% in now. I know. She loves the idea of controlling Malkovich like a puppet and stealing his life. Yeah. This is all very appealing to You'd her. love to see the development story of Maxine. Yeah, and ultimately what happens in the film, Craig gets the ultimate comeuppance, which is mm-hmm. fair, but yeah. she doesn't get anything. Right. And it feels like she does not deserve the happiness she gets at I the know. end. I know, yeah. She seems equally as wicked as I Craig. know, she seems... Not as hateable as Craig, but almost as much of a, as a villain. But by the end, she's not really portrayed that way. Yeah, she's more or less just a secondary thing to what goes on between Craig and Lottie. Yeah. And who gets the upper hand. Right. <laughs> While Maxine and Craig, by way of Malkovich, are planning a new life together, Lottie goes to confront Dr. Lester. Mm-hmm. Lester reveals that he is, in fact, Captain Merton, and he discovered the portal to a vessel body in the late 1800s. He then erected the Merton Flemmer building to conceal it. He has obtained immortality by moving from one body to the next, which becomes ripe Hmm. on the host's 44th birthday, allowing him to take possession If he enters the portal past midnight on that day, the 44th birthday, he will instead be trapped in the next newborn vessel, helpless inside the new host's mind. Lester and a 
group of friends all plan to occupy Malkovich together once he turns 44, and Lottie warns them that Craig has taken control. A lot of unanswered questions here. So many that it's (laughs) nuts. First of all, he shows Lottie a book. Yeah, yeah. So who wrote this book? (laughs) How do they know that it has to be on the 44th birthday? How do they know if you wait too long, you're trapped in the next vessel? A lot of shocking plot details all thrown to you right here. What happens if there is no next vessel? Because it just seems like a weird coincidence that Maxine ends up getting pregnant and is the next vessel after this. this. But in order to know that you get trapped in the next vessel, wouldn't that have had to have happened to somebody? And if so... Because you don't have yeah. part of it is you don't have control either. You're trapped in the new vessel. Yep. Helpless inside the new host's mind, as I said. Like you're basically just a passenger in their mind. You have no control. Yes. So how the fuck would they know that? I'm gonna throw a weird comparison out, but I was getting some Rosemary's baby vibes with this whole thing. Sure. Did yeah. Lester's whole crew Reminds you of Roman and all of them. Old evil people. Yeah. <laughs> Although um, they don't portray Dr. Lester and his friends as evil. No. Really, even though what they're but doing it is, is nefarious. Fucked up yeah. in a way. Although we don't know how this all originated. Maybe the vessel is not really a complete human. Maybe Malkovich is not a real human. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. How does one become the vessel? But if we're going to jump ahead for a moment, and we will definitely circle back and finish the plot, but... Okay, so Malkovich is the vessel. He's approaching his 44th birthday. Somehow, Lester has figured out a way to not only occupy Malkovich, but to bring his friends. And they're all going to do it together. Okay. The next vessel, which I'm not sure how they know this to be true, but the next vessel is going to be the offspring of Malkovich. And Malkovich will, by way of Craig, or by, you know, Craig by way of Malkovich, everyone will look at it impregnates Maxine once they get married, and that is the next vessel. Mm -hmm. So that suggests that it has to be passed down through the current vessel. So they're entering Malkovich when he's 44. Yes. He's having a child when Mm -hmm. he's 44. Correct. Which means they would have to wait until Emily, the daughter, Mm -hmm. is 44, which would mean Malkovich is 88. Wow. Which means every time they're waiting, it's 88. Now, I don't know if there's some sort of special spell that makes sure that they live to be 88, but it would seem like your luck would run out at some point. Like, this body ain't built for 88. No. Like, if they jumped into my body, they'd be like, oh, my God. Malkovich is hanging out with Charlie Sheen. You don't think there's some hard living going on? (laughs) I like when they do the seven years later, and they both look like they're 110. (laughs) It's like, what? Charlie Sheen bald with just <laughs> strands of hair comb over. You know, because movie stars always allow that to happen. Exactly. <laughs> Looking like you. Yes. So there's a lot of unanswered questions here. I know that it's all fantasy shit, and I do really admire this movie and love it, and mm-hmm. I, I think it's so interesting and cool, and I wish there was way more movies like this, but then again, if there were, then it wouldn't seem as special, et cetera, et cetera, but... I do wonder if giving all of this detail is necessary. Is there a way that you can sort of get to the end, the same end point, without giving us like all of this Probably. detail? Probably, yeah. 
because it just leads to more questions. Right. It's that old thing where if you start trying to explain things in a movie, you end up making it worse. You could have less. So many other. You could have less of an explanation in this. But I guess they definitely want you to understand the end. That's with true. Greg's character and his hell, his prison that sure. he's in. Yeah. They really want that to hit, but I don't know. There's a lot of questions here. Forty four is. That feels like they had to be specific for Malkovich because uh-huh. you'd think it would be younger, like 44. So basically, you get to just live the same 44 years, not the good 44 years. I know. 44 to 88. I'd much rather live, I don't know. 19 to 22. <laughs> oh, only three years. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking if you had to pick 44 years, maybe start when you're 10. Yeah. Or 15, maybe? I don't know. 15 to 59? Mm-hmm. I don't know. That would be a better range. But how about this? In the first draft of the script, Lester and his friends weren't using Malkovich's portal as a means for extending their lives, but in a plot to take over the world hmm. in the name of... Satan. Satan. Wow, okay. Satan was the mysterious Flemmer that the Merton Flemmer building was half-named after. The original script was much different. Instead of Craig making Malkovich a famous puppeteer, in the original script he announced to the world that he is the master puppeteer and Malkovich is his puppet. He does a one-man show in Las Vegas. Mr. Flemmer of Merton Flemmer is actually the devil and tries to convince Craig to get out of Malkovich's mind so that he and his group can take over the world. All right. When Craig and the great Mantini, the world's best puppeteer, challenge each other, Flemmer controls the great Mantini's Harry S. Truman puppet, which culminates in Flemmer raising the real Truman from the grave to tell the audience to vote for Mantini. Wow. A defeated Craig leaves the vessel and Flemmer and company take over as Malkovich and have him rule the world. Wildly different. Craig and Lottie reunite, but it's revealed that the great Mantini is controlling him and Flemmer is controlling the great Mantini. And when Flemmer laughs... His throat looks like the tunnel to the vessel that goes into Malkovich. I mean, it just goes so deep into its own ass there. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I think what they went with is better. I think so. That sounds so ridiculous. Sure. <laughs> because Craig is inside of Malkovich, he announces a sudden career change for the actor. He's engaged to Maxine and now wants to forsake acting and instead become synonymous with puppeteering he tells his agent this who repeatedly says sorry about the cunt at reception (laughs) (laughs) there's a couple parts in this movie where they just keep repeating like a very politically incorrect really (laughs) yes that is apparent but yeah his agent seems to be agreeable to this which i don't really think would ever happen either yeah i think it's just part of that once you're a celebrity most things seem like well maybe we can squeeze some money out of this although i also think it's part of maybe the most fantastical element of the film which is like this is a world that's ready to embrace puppeteering mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> which well, has never I mean, happened they, i know it, but they just start playing that for laughs and it's no i know excellent but, but even this agent is like yeah. ready to be like yeah, yeah that's great eight months later i love this sequence Craig fully inhabits Malkovich now. He marries Maxine, and she becomes pregnant. He also turns Malkovich into a world-class puppeteer. People in Hollywood celebrating it. 
they refer to Malkovich's middle name as Horatio, but that's made up in the script. His real middle name is Gary. I do love that in this eight-month eight time period, Malkovich, who is a mostly bald man, is growing a skullet to emulate what Craig's hair was like. Yeah. <laughs> Rough. Never a good look. It's simultaneously the most egotistical and egoless idea ever to be mm-hmm. in this movie. It's the movie where your name is in the title, but yet you are made to sort of look terrible and foolish in the film at times. Right. And you have to understand that some of the audience is going to think that this is what you're really like. Mm-hmm. Sort of a dope. <laughs> Ordering bath mats over the phone. <laughs> uh, could I get three hand towels instead of the second bath mat <laughs> in periwinkle periwinkle sold out loden i'm like is what the fuck is loden is that a color yeah at some point in the film malkovich is described as being from evanston illinois he's not but at that moment john cusack's character is inside his mind and cusack is from evanston mm. sort of a little weird easter egg there but yeah, this is the fake television program, oh, yeah. the network special celebrating the career of Malkovich, who has gone from respected Genius. actor to puppeteer. Yes. <laughs> and so it was that just eight short months ago, John Malkovich dropped the bombshell that sent shockwaves through the entertainment community. Turning his back on his former profession, Malkovich had to start from scratch and pay his dues all over again as a fledgling puppeteer. Gentlemen, I'm John Malkovich. It's it's the MS. Uh, really, John Malkovich. <laughs> From these inauspicious beginnings, John Malkovich's rise to stardom was fast and furious. His breakout performance occurred at this year's Emmy Awards. Where it's he really good. I look really amazing. I'd fuck me. If there's anything that upsets me about it, it's feeling like if I move into it too quickly, I'll be you know deemed an, an imitator. But um, I think that once, uh, once we all get the courage to just follow through on our instincts like Malkovich has, I think that uh, a lot of us will move into puppetry. Malkovich's rise to fame brought about a renaissance in the art of puppeteering. No, 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 what are you doing? What, what are you doing? I'm making him weep, John. You, you're making him weep, but you yourself are not weeping. Don't ever f- with your audience until the, the puppet be, becomes an extension of you. It's a, it's a novelty act. It's it's a, it's Topo Gijo. No? He's a technical genius. He breathes life into inanimate objects. It's a very godlike thing, you know, to be able to take something and, you know, make it live. He was the talk of the town from the Beltway to Broadway, aided in no small part by his new wife and manager, Maxine Lund. In Maxine, Malkovich had found his mentor, his muse, his inspiration. In Malkovich, Maxine had found the love of her life. My dear, relax. This travesty will all be over with by morning. And the crowds have been absolutely sensational. And um, I'd just like to thank God for giving us this opportunity to share our creative vision. Complete with celebrity appearances, mm-hmm. we see an audience that includes Winona Ryder, Andy Dick, and Hanson. Oh. <laughs> I think that that might be 
archival footage. I don't know that that was actually filmed. Yeah, it seemed that way for the movie. But then there's like the Sean Penn part. That is talking. hilarious. <laughs> David Fincher pops up as a critic or writer yeah. or something. Christopher Bing. <laughs> But the Brad Pitt part is clearly filmed for this. It's a half-second cameo because it's right after, I think, Maxine is on screen, right? It's like all part of it. That's like one little thing they filmed together. But while this is happening and while Malkovich is being celebrated and he seems to have everything that he wants, meanwhile, in the other room, Maxine has a Lottie puppet that she's Mm -hmm. tucking into bed as if she's preparing to have this baby in a crib and everything. And so Maxine... Still carrying the torch? Seems to miss her, for real. It is a Lottie puppet. It is not a Malkovich puppet with Lottie inside of it. That's true. Maybe she was wrong to make Lottie go into a different body, and now she wants Lottie for herself, as herself, or whatever. It's all very confusing. Yes, it is. On Malkovich's 44th birthday, Lester and Lottie kidnap Maxine, they call to demand Craig leave Malkovich, threatening to kill Maxine, but he hangs up on them. He can't do it, even though Maxine is in danger, because this is everything he's built. This is his dream life, and it's all as Malkovich. And if he leaves Malkovich, he has nothing. He literally is nothing. He's disappeared off the planet for eight months. Such a sad statement. The only way to achieve your dreams is through someone else. Well, this podcast, for example. Yeah, me. <laughs> I didn't say which one of us. Okay. On the seventh floor, with Lester and friends desperate to have Craig leave so that they can enter Malkovich before midnight. I made a little note here. Why the fuck did they leave it until the last minute? Yeah. You had eight months. I know. You waited until the birthday to actually... Go for the plan. A desperate Lottie decides to shoot Maxine. If I can't have you, no one will. And this is right up Maxine's alley. She tries to kill her. It can't, it can't happen. Maxine's running away. Lester's yelling. You can't really kill her. She's carrying Malkovich's seed. It's the uh, lineage of the vessel. <laughs> our next vessel. But, of course, Lottie doesn't give a shit about that. It's all about emotions. A very pregnant Maxine escapes through the portal. Oddly enough, this is the one and only time that Maxine tries the portal out for herself. But which. This- I don't really understand why she doesn't do it at the beginning. And something over this eight months now, the perception of Maxine has changed. She doesn't seem as cold and cutting as she was. It's a different version of Maxine. She's got a lot of regrets. Yeah. I think hanging out with Craig. Yeah, it really it wears on you. Because, yes, it's Malkovich, but it's Craig's personality. Right. It's Craig's hair. Horrible. <laughs> Craig's puppeting. Yes. It's rough. You also view her differently because she's pregnant, which yeah. was the old trope of viewing pregnant women differently, sacred, Yep. some people to be protected, that kind of a thing. I don't know. But yeah, she is different. She had some sort of like an attitude change. That's right. She turned face. I don't know why Maxine just trusted Craig at the beginning, but this is the first time that she goes into the portal. But because Craig is already in there, they don't get to experience it the same way. Mm -hmm. And Lottie follows her in. There ends up being a big chase through Malkovich's subconscious before they both are ejected. Some pretty rough memories for old Johnny Boy. I'd say so. Yeah. Not a great childhood. At one point, he's like sitting in a rocking chair in a basement saying, I'm bad, I'm bad, or something. Yeah. 
And then he's on the bus and he like peed himself and all of the other kids on the bus are singing little Johnny Malcolm P. (laughs) (laughs) Wet his pants for all to see. (laughs) (laughs) It's like straight out of Billy Madison. Yeah. Except not for laughs. Yeah. That's another thing that if you're Malkovich, you might think that some of the people watching the film This must be real. Might believe that's real. In the rain on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike, the two finally have it out. Maxine confesses that she kept her unborn child because it was conceived while Lottie was in Malkovich's mind. Wow. It's your baby, okay? How can that be? <laughs> None of it really makes any yeah. sense. But it goes beyond the physical. It goes beyond right. the DNA. of. There's an emotional... You are emotionally the father. Yeah. You were an emotional friend. The women seem to cement their love for each other. Craig, believing Maxine to still be in danger, gets drunk, gets in a bar fight, and then calls Lester back to tell him that he's leaving Malkovich. When Craig falls out next to the turnpike, he's holding the board Yes, he brought in with him the first time, the time he discovered the portal, and had left there inside of Malkovich. Right. It's been so long since it's been referenced that it's almost a shock to see it again. Yeah, so the first time he went into Malkovich, he didn't know where he was going, and he was holding a piece of wood, and then he leaves it there. And when he's like trying to explain what the fuck happened to Maxine, he's like, where's the piece of wood? Mm-hmm. Where's the board, Maxine? And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Right. So it's like somehow inside of Malkovich, defying all logic and matter and all that kind of shit and so in a weird way this does perhaps symbolize an inability to ever go back yeah there's like an inception thing here too where wouldn't you be a little bit messed up living in someone else's subconscious for this amount of time yeah that's what i said before in the sense that he basically disappeared from the planet for eight months and now he's back yeah do you go to the bathroom motor functions all intact or is your urine that was in your body connected to- connected and you pee it out with Malkovich? I don't know. <laughs> or are you just relieving yourself in there? <laughs> I don't know how it works. Yeah. Malkovich is finally himself again for the first time in eight months, but only for a moment, though, as Lester and his friends make their way inside in order to keep on living. Discovering Maxine and Lottie together outside of the portal, Craig swears... To re-enter Malkovich, kick Lester out, and win Maxine back. (laughs) But they're, like, getting into a car. (laughs) Maxine's, like, telling the driver he's not with us, and they just leave him. (laughs) John Cusack in the rain yelling after a woman. How many times Mm -hmm. in a movie? Every movie. (laughs) Charlie, you fucking bitch. (laughs) Let's Let's work work it out. (laughs) One of the all-time great moments in any movie ever. (laughs) Basically ripped from my life. (laughs) Seven years later. Uh For some reason, Malkovich and Sheen have aged significantly. (laughs) Way more than seven years. I don't understand this at all. Even in like the various plot synopsis and stuff, it's like an elderly Malkovich. I'm like, it's seven years later. He was 44. I know. They both look like they're 100. I know. Do they somehow fuse with the people who lived inside of them? Is that why he had that weird hair after a while? I, I don't know. 
But then what's the point? You have to wait until Emily is 44. It, She's it, a child. It seems like the payoff is not worth everything. I know. I'm looking like forward to death better. so much yeah. at this point. Like I, I can't imagine. Malkovich is now in a relationship with Lester's old secretary, Floris, who's still doing the hearing bit. She doesn't look like she's aged. No. That's why I think it's somehow connected, but nobody is inhabiting Sheen, though, so... <laughs> I know. I it know. almost seems like he is. It feels like he's being inhabited, too. Malkovich is also what's known as a system now. He is multiple distinct and overlapping consciousnesses on top of each other. They've somehow worked this out. I don't really know the logistics of this. There's like a half dozen to a dozen people living in him. Mm -hmm. It's like a community. Sure. Are they able to communicate with each other in there? I guess like you're experiencing it, but who's in control? Do they take turns as to who's in control? I don't know. Left to the imagination. I guess you would just take turns and just sort of chill. Yeah. Malkovich tells Sheen about the plan to extend their lives via the portal, which now leads to the mind of Emily, Maxine's daughter, me, you, Mm -hmm. Floris, Gary Sinise maybe. (laughs) It's weird though. So they're all in Malkovich, like 12, 15 people, whatever it is. So when they jump into... Emily later, in 40, I guess she's older than four, she's seven, so 30 whatever years, and he's bringing more people. Yes. How does that work? I I couldn't (laughs) tell you. I could not say. Have they done that multiple thing before? Like, how many people total are living forever now? I don't know. We're going to have to take a look at that book. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. You just sort of have to let it go. Craig, who entered the portal too late, though, is permanently trapped inside Emily, forced to watch Lottie and Maxine live happily together. Because remember, he has no control over Emily. Mm -hmm. So if she stares at her mother's kissing, he can't look away. And I guess he can't close his eyes either because he doesn't have eyes, I guess, is part of it. Because when he was going inside of Malkovich the first time, he was under Malkovich's control until he learned how to control Malkovich. But now that he's suppressed by her subconscious and he can't do anything and he's basically a prisoner, I think that means his consciousness exists inside of her, but he doesn't have like his own eyes within her. If she's looking at something, he has to look at it too, which is a weird mindfuck to think of, to have yeah. your own consciousness, but no body and no control over anything. Mm-hmm. So whatever she does, says, eats, sees, smells, whatever, he has to experience it. So, rough. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't just not be a piece of shit. Although, yeah, he got what he deserved. You do wonder, though, would this have all led to this even if he was an upstanding guy? Maybe not being trapped inside of the little girl, but him losing his wife to Maxine... Would that have happened anyway, even if he wasn't trying to fuck Maxine? Could have. Would, wouldn't she have already come to this conclusion if just by him finding the portal in the first place? Yeah. And not even if Maxine like really wasn't that much of a factor, like wouldn't she eventually leave him? Maybe not for Maxine. I don't know. It feels like that would have been the road that we would have gone down. <sighs> I guess for guys like Craig, there are no good roads. 
(laughs) (laughs) They all lead to something horrible. Yes. Yeah, it's a wild movie. And some of the logistics, when you pull it all apart, I'm not sure that it all completely makes sense. But at the same time, I don't know that it really matters. It's a weird trajectory. And the way you start off with Craig, I'm sort of expecting that this is a guy that we're going to root for and have it turn around for him in some way, but it only gets worse the more time you spend with him. I don't think that falling out of love with your wife is the worst thing in the world. It's not great, but it happens. But to carry on the way that he does and to just be such I a know. fucking loser Pathetic. and a pussy yeah. and just unable to be open and honest and to accept rejection even, he should be open and honest with Lottie, but that aside, he makes his move for Maxine. She's definitely not into it. He can't let it go. He tries to use this fucking portal thing to impress her. Ugh. Then it turns into this whole manipulation thing. Mm-hmm. They're using Malkovich. You get into like all kinds of issues of consent and weird shit like that. And it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess I'll say it. Go ahead. <laughs> I know people are sick of hearing it, but I'm going to say it. 1999 was a time where you could believe that there would be endless amounts of years of these kind of things to look forward to. Mm. Everything was popping off. You had The Matrix. You had the rise of teen movies. American Pie came out the same year. You had American Beauty win Best Picture, which is controversial in retrospect, but whatever. The Sixth Sense, Blair Witch Project, Magnolia, all kinds of different things in all Mm. kinds of different directions. It felt limitless. The box office was still huge. And then you had this really cool new generation of guys coming along, of which Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman are both a part of. Aronofsky, who we'll be talking about soon. Spoiler alert. PTA was mm-hmm. up and running. Christopher Nolan, etc. A new generation of guys coming along. And... It's a little disheartening that it just doesn't feel that way now, but I know I know that part of that is just getting old. Sure, yes. The shit that comes out now does not mean anything to us. The we same are decrepit. Way. Yeah. We're like Lester. 105 years old. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. But yeah, it's a little disappointing that Spike Jones hasn't made more films. It just doesn't seem like that's what he's interested in. He has a very bizarre career. Definitely. With all kinds of different things in it. But he made four narrative feature films, starting with this, going into adaptation, which we'll talk about in a minute. Where the Wild Things Are, kind of his biggest miss, if you ask me. Mostly disliked. Her. Yeah. And then that was 10 years ago, basically, mm-hmm. now. And he's made documentaries and music videos and shorts and all kinds of different shit. But that was it as far as feature films. Charlie Kaufman spun it off after doing scripts for other people and started directing his own stuff. And like I said, I I like most of it. Yeah. I don't know that he's ever really had a hit as a director. You mean money-wise? Yeah. No, not really. But he's pretty secure in that worship of art house. And sometimes, you know, it's it's a little heavy-handed, but... I think that he's undoubtedly one of the most interesting and creative writers out there. For sure. Adaptation. I just watched it today. 
there is a fictional behind-the-scenes glimpse of the making of being John Malkovich in Adaptation, which was the follow-up for both Kaufman and Spike Jones. I wanted to rewatch it just to get a reference point for what those scenes were, because I couldn't actually remember off the top of my head, other than to make Charlie Kaufman seem like a loser. <laughs> but yeah, those scenes don't really shed that much light on it, other than Catherine Keener in real life, in a meta way, is supposed to sort of kind of be like Maxine. Right. <laughs> Adaptation, we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about it because we are definitely going to do it someday, but it is hilarious. Absolutely. It's one of the all-time performances ever. It's like one of those things that just talking about the idea of it is funny. Yeah. And like how it came to be. Yeah, it's, in a weird way, it's more meta than being John Malkovich. It's not quite as weird because there's stuff in Malkovich that could never happen. Right. Whereas... Even though it's fictional, and it it does, there's nothing supernatural in it. Not supernatural, but still absurd. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's fake, obviously. Right. He doesn't really have a twin brother, and never did. But it's not supernatural, though. Right. It's just totally it's mixing reality. Yeah. And with fiction. fiction. Yeah. In a completely unique way. Since the 2017 release of Get Out. Fan theories have suggested that Get Out is a sequel to this film, being John Malkovich, with Katherine Keener reprising her role 18 years later and Allison Williams playing the grown-up Emily, Malkovich's daughter. Get Out director Jordan Peele has responded to this by saying that it was not his intention when he created Get Out, but he still likes the theory and has discussed it with Spike Jones. Notable parallels include the theme of one person's consciousness taking over another person's body and being trapped as a passive spectator inside a body, being absorbed in this film, and being in the sunken place Mm -hmm. in Get Out. So there's some parallels there. that's some interesting crossover. I hadn't thought of that. All right. Anything else to say about BJM? I think we said everything that can be articulated about it there's a john malkovich there's a ton of philosophical shit out there when i was looking oh yeah that goes so deep with what this material means which i don't think we have the capacity to dive into but yeah i think we've covered what we can yeah it, it definitely raises questions about More than just consciousness, but like having a soul and what it means to be a human or a person in a strange way. It it actually tackles some of the same stuff that you get into with stuff like Blade Runner or Ex Machina even, which you wouldn't think so on the surface because you're not really creating artificial life. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being able to use a body as a vessel and what makes somebody human that question right. is it the body is it the body and the soul is the soul a real thing or is it just consciousness and if you don't have a soul then is this ethical or not you know i know who knows right on just like a surface level it's just a a strange experimental type of narrative starring recognizable hollywood faces with a first time director who is the right match for this kind of material because Mm -hmm. I think it just matches Jones's sensibilities 
pretty well. Yeah. Although, you know, Gondry did pretty well with Eternal Sunshine. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that movie, which has its own science fiction element to it, that has much more of a heart to it, which this movie does not really have any kind of sentimentality or heart to it. It's very it's much little. more of like a a callous, cold approach uh-huh. to this kind of a thing. It stands out in a way, too, because I will say that Kaufman's material is all very distinct, even though it's you could sort of believe pretty easily that you would fall into the idea of it uh-huh. being a gimmick. I'm just going to make the weirdest shit you yeah. can come up with. But adaptation is much more funny. It's mm-hmm. much more grounded in real anxiety, like real relatable feeling. Uh-huh. Whereas this is strictly weird. Yes. And it's hard to really relate to the characters in any way. True. Except for maybe Craig being a loser. <laughs> yeah. But it's much more action-based. And I don't mean action like an action movie, but things happening-based mm-hmm. rather than emotional-based. Whereas Eternal Sunshine is 100% heart sentimentality, regret, emotion, yes, falling in love, falling out of love. The infinite sadness. (laughs) And then I can't really speak to Synecdoche or however you say that, New York. I've never actually heard anyone say that word. Same. But I'm thinking of ending things. That is like a whole other can of worms of what the fuck is going on there. Yeah, and meta stuff in there too, like the shit that ends up being dialogue taken from old movie reviews or something. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. Okay, folks, being John Malkovich, of course we recommend checking it out if you have not, although I think listening to this podcast, if you've never seen it, would be its own weird Definitely. Charlie Kaufman script. (laughs) (laughs) Two clowns (laughs) who don't know what they're talking about. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent, stop making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. I'm going to do a quick recommendation, just tagging on something that I've talked about before, I think, at some point. I watched the third installment of In Search of Darkness, In Search of Darkness Part 3. It's in journey through 80s horror these are five plus hour long documentaries going through all of the different various horror films released in the 1980s part one you have mostly your heavy hitters with a few obscure titles part two you have what's left over from those heavy hitters starting to mix in more obscure titles now part three a lot of these films are a little bit more off the rails and okay. you start getting into the straight to video stuff, even more so the stuff filmed on video, Wow, which was a thing that happened in the eighties because as they talk about in this third segment, there was a lot of money to be made in VHS stuff in the eighties. VHS tapes cost about anywhere from a hundred to 200 bucks for a while. So, You figure at one point there was like 40,000 VHS rental stores. Mm -hmm. Even if there was only one copy of your tape in half of those stores, that's a lot of money. Definitely. And if they all of the stores had it or some of the chains would carry 10 copies of your title maybe or five copies of your title, there's a lot of money to be made. 
So I will say that part three was the weakest. Okay. Only because I think because the titles were more obscure that over half of the movies are just one person telling you about them out of the talking heads that they have on this. It's some of the same talking heads that they had in part one and part two. There might be a few new people. I don't know. I think they filmed a lot of this shit together and then they cut it into three movies over time because I don't know if you're really getting all these people to come back to talk about some fucking VHS movie from 1986 or something. But you know what I mean. Uh, yes. But these titles are more obscure. So like, if you have 30 different talking heads, maybe only one of them feels comfortable talking about I can't think of an example of a you know zombie death killers from 1987. <laughs> you know whatever sounds great. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. So then they have one person tell you about it, whereas in the previous one the movies are a little bit more common, and then so you might have like six seven people chiming in with different things. So that got kind of old. I did like some of the segments. This time there's one on D Wallace and Adrian Barbeau. Oh, okay. Different things like that. In previous ones, they did like Nancy Allen and Linnea Quigley, just different legends, legends of the era. The thing that's cool about these fifteen plus hours, I guess, out of if not that you would watch these all at once or or anything like that, but it provides a checklist if you're interested in expanding your horizons with '80s horror, because '80s horror is really unique because of the boom of the VHS world. Mm. There's just so many movies. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of them. I own a lot of them. But then once you start getting into some of part two and part three, it's like, I never even heard of some of them. Yeah. I can remember the days of going to Blockbuster and going to the horror section and you saw how much of this shit existed. Well, yeah. And Blockbuster was like the shitty version. Yeah. yeah. They talk about the mom and pop stores and how they would have all the craziest shit from like Asia and europe and different stuff that you never like they have asian movies in this one part three that like i can't believe are real i've never heard of them right off the wall horrible stuff happening in them (laughs) (laughs) there's this one series of films that i never heard of that was basically like snuff films oh boy but not real but that's like what they felt like there was like almost no plot it was like videodrome yikes (laughs) just like vhs tapes of torture wow all right, so if, yeah, if you're interested in horror movies, In Search of Darkness, parts one through three are all on Shudder, I believe. I know part three is. I think the first two parts are still on there. I think the, what's up next for those guys who make these is the 1990s, I believe, they're going to start jumping into, which is its own universe because horror was so shat upon in the 90s for the first half, at least, that a lot of that stuff probably is legitimately undiscovered and unknown by people because I'm sure it was sort of the darkest corner for a while of the world the horror world so yeah I, I enjoyed all three of those check wow. those out on shutter if you have it do you have a recommendation yeah I mean hard to follow that up but why what was wrong with that <laughs> you just paint a beautiful picture when you give a recommendation I'll do a movie that speaking of things streaming on multiple platforms which we hit on earlier this is although I watched it on physical media we had a little run of nice weather here and this reminds me of a spring movie for some reason or it just has a certain spark to it starring Nicolas Cage from Adaptation and Cher Moonstruck which maybe one of us has recommended on this before but just a super fun movie feel good Cher a shining star 
<laughs> yeah, it's so crazy to think that Nicolas Cage was a leading man in a romantic comedy like 35 years ago. I know. You see where it's all heading with him just giving this like bizarre performance of this bizarre character. Yeah. Cage, he's not that different from Malkovich in terms of his career, except... Had like some more leading man. Yeah, he had way bigger hits. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really comparable in that sense, but in the sense of where they're at today, where True. Cage will have like a run of straight-to-VOD movies, and then every now and then he gets sucked back into things people know about, his latest resurgence was Mandy, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then it led to a whole run of things. And now he's playing Dracula in some Renfield movie, oh, which yeah. I'm sure will be terrible. Sure. Whatever. But yeah, one of the hardest actors ever to really get a read on. Definitely. I don't think he ever really mails it in, but sometimes oh, he always it's goes just for a it. big swing and a miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But always compelling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but some of my favorite movies of the last 20 years or 30 years are, are movies that stand out because they're so crazy and weird. And one of those would be Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which, mm-hmm. believe it or not, we did do on this podcast. Sometimes it's hard to remember yeah, seriously. we've done. That movie, that's sort of like its own being John Malkovich. It's just so weird <laughs> and hard to explain. Definitely. All right, yes, Moonstruck is awesome. And Cher, man, between that and Witches of Eastwick, you're like, why didn't she... And Mermaids, which is also great. You wish that she was in, like, five or six more, though. I know. that time period from, like, 86 to, like, 92. Right in there, like, five, six, seven more movies would have been great. I know. Have you ever seen Mermaids? I don't think so, but I have seen Witches of Eastwick. I'll have to let you borrow Mermaids. Yeah. You'd like it. Okay, good. It's got your boy from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Hoskins? Yeah. All right, yeah. Let's go. Hoskins and Cher, baby actresses that we like. I think Winona and someone else, too. Okay. Very young. I I don't know. All right, folks. This one's gone on long enough. Thank you so much for listening. We may take a break next week or we may not. Matt really sprung something on me. Almost unforgivable, really. This, Life is a whirlwind. This long into the podcast, yeah. seven years, and he's springing things on me like this. <laughs> I have a hard time with my schedule. I don't know. We'll try to be back next week. If not, we'll be back as soon as possible. Whatever. You follow the podcast. You know. Some of you listened to that Godfather episode and were like, enough. Never again. Never again. <laughs> as soon as they started talking about tip jars and all this other shit, forget it. People were done. So anyway, follow us on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. If you'd like a free sticker, you can let us know on Twitter. That's also where you can do a listener request or give us some money through our tip jar. Anything is much appreciated if you, if you'd like. Totally. If you do have a listener request, reach out on Twitter and we'll we'll figure out the pricing and all that stuff. And it's not free. That's all I'm going to say. We don't need to explain it again. (laughs) No. Just reach out on Twitter. You can find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. And more importantly than anything else, if you've listened to the program today for the first time, or if you've been a longtime listener, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. It would be much appreciated. 
that's pretty much the only thing that keeps us going. And believe me, we don't forget about them either. If you gave it to us a month or two or three or four or a year ago, believe me, Matt's rereading those almost every other night. Absolutely. It's the only thing that keeps me going. (laughs) So we thank you so much if you've already done so. If you've ever reached out on Twitter, whatever, please keep in touch. Let us know your thoughts on being John Malkovich and anything else we talk about. And we will hopefully talk to you next week. Place. He put 
times on Dusty Rhodes and his family. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work and got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years. They give him a watch, kick him in the butt, and say, hey, a computer took your place, Daddy. That's hard times. That's hard times. And Ric Flair, you put hard times on this country by taking Dusty Rhodes out. That's hard times. And we all had hard times together. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day supposed to look. My belly's just a little big. My hand is just a little big. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. And there were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other one's right here.